Hey, Frogcast fans, it's Vince Mancini here. Um, I do a lot of interviews that are for feature, like print features on Uproxx, and I usually don't post the audio, but uh, in this, this interview, I interviewed Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman. Um, Billy is the director, and Alfred is his producing partner, and they've done a bunch of documentaries all about Florida. Uh, they did the Cocaine Cowboys movies. The U, uh, Dogfight, and they lasted uh, Screwball. And then their latest, which is on HBO now, um, is called 537 Votes. And it's about uh, how Bush stole the uh, 2000 election, but all because of a bunch of weird, um, all because of a bunch of weird circumstances in Florida. And uh, it's a great watch. And I also think it's important to watch before this election, uh, even though it's, you know, painful to relive at times. So I thought I would post uh, our full conversation. I also think, you know, Billy is almost as good a talker as he is a filmmaker. So he's fun to listen to. And, uh, and Alfred, uh, kind of sounds like his voice kind of sounds like Lars Ulrich from Metallica. So, uh, keep a lookout for that. Um, anyway, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation that I had with, Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman about 537 votes. Uh, check it out and, you know, of course, subscribe to the Patreon, patreon.com slash fraudcast. All right. Enjoy. All right, very cool. I told, uh, I told Zach, I said, you know, when, uh, you had written my my favorite screwball piece uh, out of all the, the coverage we got on screwball. Yours was my favorite. Oh, thank you. And I told Zach, I, I said, I said, I got to call. We got to call Vince and then get him uh, take a look at uh, at five thirty seven. Yeah, I mean, I was like a fan of your guys' movies. I think before I even knew that they were all by the same people. You know. But, oh, yeah. okay. Uh, my thank you. One of my friends is a uh, uh, a former college football player, and he just watches the U like religiously. So <laughs> <laughs> we get that from time to time. Yeah. But, uh... I'm so sorry that there I'm late, is. or or as we call it in Miami, on time. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I got another thing go over. I apologize. No, it's all all good by me. We haven't started yet. <laughs> oh, I'm just sorry. Oh no. Oh no. no well, Vince was just telling me that Uproxx started in Miami Beach in 2008, 2009. I was like, what a time to start a business in Miami Beach. I didn't even realize that they were headquartered here. So I, I, you know, it's, it's often, it's, that makes perfect sense also, because it's like the reason why I often think like, Vince is the only person that understands me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that happened. I've only been to Florida like twice. So, uh, you know. But. You write about Florida, Vince, you have such a take on Florida. <laughs> Uh, like, yeah. like like a tr- like a true Floridian, and I don't know that that's a compliment. <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> I'll take it as one nonetheless, and just pretend <laughs> it was. Yeah. Um. Sorry. Right, so like, I've said many times, it feels like we're kind of living in like a shitty alternate future right now. Um. Uh. You know. T- can you tell me like why it was Florida that uh sent us down this path, or specifically Miami? I guess. Yeah, you know what? It's so vivid to me when I was interviewing Mitchell Berger. Mitchell Berger is is Al Gore's like friend, like back I think it's like practically college back in Tennessee, 
and um, was was one of his attorneys during the the recount. And um, he was sort of the young Turk, very aggressive, very profane, really taking up the cause of going out and and you know taking it to the streets. Uh, that tactic was not embraced by uh, Warren Christopher and the Gore campaign, uh, much to Mitchell's chagrin. But when you see him and you see him kind of like look off and when he gets pensive and almost kind of sad, here's a guy like we all make decisions in our life. Things happen to us. We make things happen. And those decisions lead us to where we are today. I remember saying to Alfred, I was like, I don't know anybody whose life hit a fork in the road like Mitchell Berger, where like his life today would be so much different. No, personally, like so much different had his best friend become the president of the United <laughs> States. Yeah. And like, so here he is now a very successful, prominent, very well-respected attorney and democratic fundraiser to this day. But like, you still see in his eyes, like, I don't know, like attorney general, Mitchell Berger or <laughs> Senator Mitchell Berger, or, and he's that good and that smart and, and, and could have been that guy. And like, I think about that, like just to kind of personalize it for a moment, you know, but like, I think about that moment and I realize that like, wow, this really was a moment in history that sent not just this one man, but this entire, but the entire free world on a whole other path, all because of 537 votes in Florida, which should frighten literally everybody. Right. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, I mean, you got at least one soundbite in there where someone discussed that, you know, if Al Gore wins that election, like maybe there's a decent chance that like 9-11 doesn't happen. And I I kind of feel like if a uh, Democrat had been president at that point, I think like the last 19 years, I don't think Republicans would have stopped reminding people like, oh, if it was us, that would have never happened. Like, <laughs> oh. Well, of course. And, and uh, so there's this episode of uh, Family Guy um, that we try to integrate into the movie. But we by the time we get to that poly sci-fi question of what if Gore had won, we're already kind of into the more somber you know, epilogue of the movie, the last four minutes. So it just had no place there. But in this episode, it's a Back to the Future homage um, uh, where Peter uh, and Brian go back in time and... Peter and the the wife don't get married and Lois don't get married. And so it has this butterfly effect. And when they come back to present day, not only is she married to like Quagmire and has children with him, but inexplicably Al Gore won the 2000 presidential election <laughs> in this butterfly effect. And there's all these like funny little allusions to how like America is basically a fucking utopia. <laughs> where like where global warming has been solved, where Al Gore killed Osama bin Laden with his bare hands, where like like all of this, like in hindsight, funny kind of kind of alternate reality. But then you just, I, I really wish we could have gotten it in there somehow. Tonally, it just didn't fit. But like, but listen, that was my second election. Albert, that was your first election. That was my first. My first yeah. as well. Yeah. 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 So I turned I turned eighteen in the summer of ninety six. So I got to vote. Uh, in November of 96. There's a there's a book uh, that was written by the author T.D. Allman back in 1987 called Miami City of the Future. And it's basically like the Tom Wolfe book of Miami. Before Tom Wolfe ended up doing a book about Miami, it was like the quintessential like 80s Miami book. And in it, he posits a phrase that Billy and I have adopted, which is that the Miami of today is the America of tomorrow. 
And that has rung true, you know, as we've chronicled South Florida over the years, that has rung true more often than not. And, and you know, I think this is probably the best encapsulation of that, that soundbite, that quote that we've adopted over the years, uh, because Miami of 2000 certainly uh, looks like the America of, uh, of 2020. It's a hypothesis. It is. And, and we, we banked a lot of our career. I mean, we banked our entire career and our brand on, on that that idea that like Miami is perpetually relevant, mm-hmm. you know, that, that I was just doing a podcast and the guy said, he goes, I don't know if it would work in any other city where he'd be like with a filmmaker, you'd be like enough. This is your third fucking movie about your city already. Like <laughs> enough of this, you know, enough of this, you know? And like, but it uh, like, I think it keeps working here because of that idea, because of that concept. Yeah. I mean, I think it seems like you got everybody's clear on the idea that like Miami and Florida are like entertaining, but I think you guys you guys don't soft pedal that, but you also make the case that it matters uh, for the rest of the country. It seems like, um, well, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. It's so we were working on a project for a while that we were actually planning to do for this year called Miami 1980. Because three things happen in Miami in the year in the year 1980 that basically is the harbinger of America today. It's the you had the Mariel boat lift where you had 125,000 Cuban exiles arrive in six months, overwhelming our social services systems. The question of, of refugees and how many to allow into the country, and the question of do we speak English? Is Spanish you know are we a bilingual community? Uh, you know there was a big push to make English the 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 official language of Dade County. Is kind of this backlash, and then you had the McDuffie riots, which were basically a, a, a an uprising in the African American community as a result of four or five uh, white officers being acquitted of murdering an unarmed black motorist. So those three events all happened within like four months of each other in 1980. And we were going to make a documentary called Miami 1980 that looked at these things as kind of like a case study of all of these issues that befell this one particular city in this one particular year 40 years ago. And now all of America 40 years later is is suffering through the same questions and the same heartache that we had to answer here. Right. We were pitching that years ago, well before the George Floyd movement erupted this year. And it would have been that much more recent, I think. And, and, um, uh, yeah, Miami 1980. It's like when when we say the Miami of today is the America of tomorrow, I think mostly of 1980 and of 2000. Mm-hmm. So it's these kind of 20 year old 20 year intervals, and I wonder if that will hold true now of 2020. If 20 years from now, I'll be like, when I say the Miami of today is the America of tomorrow, I think of 1980, 2000, and 2020. Right. So, like, I mean, how much do you think each of your individual f- films like sort of uh further that theme like do you think that holds true for like all of them most of them i, I mean i was I, I was gonna go down like one by one but uh i mean we could always do that i, I guess well i guess working backwards you know we can go to screwball yeah um, which i think very much so you know i mean the idea that like all of you know all of life and politics has become the WWE has just become this kind of, um, you know, like, like entertainment centric kind of idea that like, you know, sports is not just this kind of, you know, uh, uh, game of rules and of mutual respect and honor and integrity, but like you just cheat to win, Mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, and then, it doesn't matter if you cheated to win. We're now going to welcome you back as like a broadcaster and a per- like it doesn't. There's no consequences because like the you know 
the the heel turn or the baby face turn is like the, one of the best storylines in wrestling. And so we're going to do a, a baby, a baby face turn with Alex Rodriguez, you know, like, and, and then like lie, cheat and steal to get ahead. Like that seems to be the, the those are the new American values. Like right. we probably talked about this when we talked about screwball. Like, I think that's very reflective of just, you know, um, Miami's kind of attitude about shortcuts to success and, and, um, and that seems to be what is revered. Um, Alfred, what else? What else you got? What other movies? There's dog okay, fight. Another one There's, uh, you know, I'm just going, going backwards. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, what's also, you know, one of the kind of unifying themes, I think, of, of our, a lot of our docs is the pursuit of the American dream by any means necessary. So that unites Cocaine Cowboys and the U and Dogfight, you know, to a sort of square grouper. Um, and Screwball, you know, I think. And, and Screwball yeah. as well, sure. And um, Magic City and Hustle. The, we for, I forgot about Magic right. City Hustle. That's, that's right. So, so you, you know, you've got, we have kind of like this string in our filmography that kind of explores that because I think Miami is like this laboratory of humanity. Uh, you know, you don't think about Cincinnati or Phoenix, you know, those are, that's always my two go-to cities. I used to be like, well, that would never have, shit would never happen in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. You know, you never see that headline out of Phoenix, you know, but Miami just has this way of being this, this, this laboratory of all of the, you know, in some cases, the worst excesses and the worst instincts of, of humanity reveal themselves here. Uh, and because we're a border town, because we're a, a place with such a transient population, people move in, they move out, uh, people come, they go. Uh, it, it, it has kind of this rhythm where almost every 10 years it resets itself and it, it develops a new image, a new identity. And so as that's happened, we can chronicle that almost decade by decade. Uh, and we have in, in, in our dots um, that you see kind of this transformation, this constantly reinventing itself with new characters and new schemes and new hustles. And those are always seem to be kind of on the leading edge of, of America. Right. And, and by the way, I do think dogfight is reflective as well, because I think that, that the, the, the income gap that that represents and the, the particularly the disparity in, um, uh, in, in the, in income with African-Americans, I think we're seeing right now, there's an insane statistic about the percentage of COVID-19 deaths that had been like Hispanic and, and, and black. Mm -hmm. um, and this is not, uh, we don't yet know enough about it to know if the, you know, if the virus itself, uh, more, you know, genetically is more detrimental to one group than another, but at the moment it seems reflective of socioeconomic status and the necessity to go out and work and become conce conceivably become infected. I think dogfight almost sort of deals with, with that in its own way. The idea that like, here's this group of, of men and women who, uh, have, have been, you know, kind of sidelined by society uh, and and who think that their best opportunity at the American dream is to participate in these basically human cockfights or human dogfights. Um, and, you know, this this kind of re it's real life Thunderdome really yeah. is what it is. It's, you know, and, and, and so I think very much so. I think that, you know, I think that we'll see favelas in Miami before long. If there's not some workforce or, or you know, low income housing uh, built so maybe they can start turning some of this class a office space into it because who the hell's gonna need any of that uh, after this but like but no i think we'll see swamp cities you know out where where because there's no place for people uh to to afford to 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 live here and work here in miami dade so i think that i think i think dogfight will very much be reflective of of the miami of tomorrow of the america of tomorrow mm -hmm. and then broke like do you think that's a florida story uh, just simply based on, you know, most athletes kind of choose to live in Florida as a uh, tax uh, avoidance strategy. 
<laughs> or, or blow all their money here or <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's no i i mean i i think that um i think broke is more of a universal tale but certainly there was a disproportionate number of athletes who either were from here or who lived here or at some point or another uh represented in the uh in the documentary but but no i i think i mean that's that's sort of an ongoing problem uh people experiencing sudden wealth events and then squandering all of their all of their money i don't know if it applies to broke <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could make the case that like America is a boom and bust. Uh, we have a boom and bust sort of attitude towards uh, economics, and we sort of we like to double down instead of building a, a safety net or whatever. And uh, you know, I don't know. You could make- well, and and also most other most other American cities have uh, have some sort of uh, indigenous industry. You know, if it's Motor City or you know, you have every city kind of had an identity built around a particular business or company or, or, or institution. Miami never had that. I mean, we sold sunshine. We said, you know, come here for vacation, come here to play. So, uh, you know, we've never, so everybody who lived here, who had moved here to live here permanently has to find a hustle to survive. There's no place you go to work for 30 years at the plant. Not that there's, you know, throughout the hollowed Midwest anymore either, but mm-hmm. we've never had that here. So everybody has always subsisted from hustle to hustle. Right. I mean, and so like, you know, if you're if we're positioning like Florida as this, uh, you know, potential like cautionary tale, like ha- how does the rest of the like what lesson do we take from that? Like, what are the things that we need to be like of seeing and avoiding? So like in this movie, that just seems like such an insane, perfect storm of all these factors, like, you know, Elian Gonzalez and all these things like it. Like, is there a, a potential lesson in there? Oh, I think there's lots of lessons in there. I think first and foremost, uh, Brad Blakeman, the, the uh, Bush campaign operative, uh, has his metaphor about the uh, the three-legged stool. Uh, you had to win in the courts, you had to win in the canvassing board recount rooms, and you had to win on the streets. And uh, Gore lacked that third leg, and thus his stool fell. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's an important uh, lesson, certainly. Uh, as I often say, the Democrats never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Mm. I think the the last four years may very well be an example of the fact that the Democrats have not learned the lesson of the 2000 Florida recount. Uh, and I hope this 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 documentary is a timely reminder to them that that um, you know I think a, another important lesson is down ballot races matter. Uh, it's too late to do anything about that now because the people we've already elected are in place and they have in turn, uh, they have appointed other people to other positions, you know, supervisors of elections and, and canvassing board members and whoever's working security at government center, you know, you know, like these people matter. These Mm -hmm. people have an outsized influence in a national election because our local officials are the ones who facilitate elections. Uh, And so you can see that, that, there was a really a long-term strategy on the part of the the Republicans, you know, to first gerrymander significant influence in the legislature, to have the brother of the man running for president as the governor of the most important swing state, um, to have a to have their own uh, to be basically one of the chair people of the Bush presidential campaign as the Secretary of State, who will be counting and certifying the election results. Um, you know, a man whose father had appointed two of the Supreme Court justices who would ultimately decide the fate, they split, but 
nonetheless. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them was one of them was certainly certainly if you're going to be amongst the five deciding uh, uh, justices, that was uh, Clarence Thomas. Uh, and so you just had this kind of long term strategy on how to win, even if you may not have the facts or the truth or the numbers or the demographics or the votes on your side. They still what what did, what is Rick Sanchez? Um, uh, say in the movie, uh, the Democrats were trying, while the Democrats were trying to do the right thing, the Republicans were figuring out how to win. Right. I mean, it seems like they're trying to, the last 20 years has been the story of like the Democrats trying to get an A from the teacher that doesn't exist. <laughs> Listen, I, well, I, sorry, Alfred, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Bill. No, the metaphor you. I always use is, especially the last four years, is that if you're on the ground and you and your opponent has one foot on your neck and the other foot is repeatedly kicking you in the stomach and you're laying there waving the constitution around <laughs> you're losing that that uh, that debate you're losing that argument and that's kind of where <laughs> like where we find ourselves uh today in a world of 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 white supremacists and and proud boys and 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 the president calling for um, you know, uh, poll patrol and everything else. I, I think one of the most uh, interesting of the Miami of today's the America tomorrow that we deal with in 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 537 is the media operation of uh, Cuban American talk radio and its ability to disseminate propaganda and disinformation in, in, in a lot of cases to a constituency who is more than willing to absorb that information and absorb it over the course of decades to the point where in 2020, we can be having a discussion about whether one of the nominees for a major political party is a communist or not. This is an (laughs) actual discussion that is going on. It's, I mean, this feels like the 1950s down here when you hear people talking about communists and, and, and the red baiting that is going on is absurd. It's, it's, it's clown, it's clown, clownish theater for, for anybody who's got a brain in their head, but you've gotten you've gotten people who have been fed this 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 propaganda, this 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 right wing talk radio uh, in this very niche cloistered community for decades and decades and decades, and they're very receptive to this message. And now we're seeing it writ large nationally. So the idea that uh, you know communista, communista, and 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 this red baiting that went on in the seventies and eighties and nineties in Miami on little AM radio stations now being used to, to run a national political campaign is astonishing. Yeah, and, and I think the the idea that Miami has effectively experienced the tyranny of the minority for decades. Uh, we have been held hostage by a subset of the Cuban American community. Um, their fellow Cuban Americans, among those of us held hostage by them, of uh, fanatical right-wing extremists who, via the kind of demagoguery that Alfred was talking about, intimidation, and in fact, real violence that we document in the movie, 150 bombings from the 1960s through the early zeros, uh, countless hijackings and various other acts of terror, um, ostensibly in the cause of anti-Castro uh, uh, action. Um, first, I think politicians were intimidated by them, and then they quickly flipped the script and realized that 
this was a uh, a constituency that they could manipulate through what uh, Fernando Mondi says in the documentary is you know weaponizing the Cuba issue by using the c word, mm-hmm. which is communists. And what is America today but that we are? I mean, Miami-Dade County is a blue county. Hillary Clinton won, I think, 60% of the vote, okay? But you look at the 34 municipalities here, the county, most of the mayors are Republican. A lot of the the city and county commissioners are Republican. We are a blue county. And and in fact, when you look at sheer uh, voter registration numbers, a blue state, but being entirely governed almost, almost entirely governed by Republicans. And- what is America now? But you know, but 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 the majority being held hostage by a vocal uh, minority of uh, fanatical right wing extremists. Mm-hmm. I mean, you guys went deep on uh, Pinellas, and uh, and that was kind of a story that, as an outsider, like I didn't really, I didn't really know any of that. Pretty much, um, like how hard did you try to interview him? We didn't. No. <laughs> No, the facts are the facts. I mean, the yeah. story is the story. What happened in 2000 has been well documented. It's been, you know, it's it's what happened. So, you know, to do, you know, there was no need for any self-serving revisionism. I mean, the facts are the facts. Yeah. And more importantly, he was running for office this year. And so, you know, you 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 wait for a lot of documentaries. We, we talk about them having to ripen the story, having to ripen people feeling comfortable, kind of looking back and being candid about you know, who they were at that time and the decisions they made. Um, a friend of mine calls it the statute of limitations has to be up, you know, has to run out before you feel comfortable going on the record and on camera about it. And because he was running for office, it kind of felt like it was like Alfred says, it would be some sort of mealy mouth campaign, sure. you know, self-serving campaign interview. And that wasn't going to further the conversation. If he wanted that, if we thought he was in a place where he'd have a real conversation, a, a candid conversation about it, mm-hmm. we would have been more willing. But I saw him in interviews this year you know, being all mealy mouthed about it. And I wasn't interested in, in, in that. Yeah. I mean, he's an interesting case because like you sort of commiserate with him in some way because he's like, he's trying to eventually like become a politician nationally. Uh, and he's dealing with this story where like the majority of Florida is very at odds with like the majority of the rest of the country. But then, and then within that, he seems like he makes, every uh poor decision afterwards <laughs> there was no good there was no good choice for him to make yeah. he was he was fucked any which way um you know and i think he probably made the worst choice he could make and exacerbated a terrible situation um but there was no good option for him um like do you think this time period is important to revisit because uh, like you're saying like this was my first election and in a lot of ways I think we like willfully forgot what happened in 2000 because it was too like traumatic and uh, and annoying to relive. Like, is this is this like a, a, an important thing um, on the cusp of this next election that we should remember what happened in 2000? Somebody said on Twitter the other day that uh, that uh, as elder millennials uh, who had this occur to you know who had this presidential election, unlike any other in history, certainly warped our sense of faith in institutions, I think, as a generation. And as we watched the election happen, and then the Iraq war, 
and then, well, 9-11 and then the Iraq war and then Hurricane Katrina and then the financial collapse. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, our generation uh, has really has really been put through the ringer here. So, you know, for us, it was a, a chance to kind of look at that brief little period prior to 9-11, where we were coming out of the end of the 90s, which for all of us, I think, for the most part, was, uh, was a decade that brought uh, uh, prosperity and peace. And um, as we became adults, all of a sudden entered this, this maelstrom of crisis after crisis after crisis. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think we've been through 20 years of this now. And I think, you know, there, there was a time before this country just lurched from crisis to crisis. I, I, I say that this movie is uh, easy to watch and tough to, to digest, you know, because I think <laughs> yeah. it's entertaining. But then it's like it's like it's dealing with a lot of heavy shit. And for those of us who have some lingering kind of PTSD over it, it's tough. But, man, I don't think it's a coincidence that by the time this election occurs, there will be three Supreme Court justices. Uh, with direct connections to the 2000 Florida recount, the Bush v. Gore Supreme Court case on the Republican side, on the G.W. Bush uh, side, um, you know, in 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 uh, John Roberts and Amy Coney Barrett uh, and um, and uh, 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 what's Brett his face? Uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Speaking of things you want to forget. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that's not. A coincidence, um, because if you know, as Fernando Monti says in the documentary, close elections can be stolen. And man, you know, Florida is a state where elections are decided in the margins. I mean, literally in the margins. I just likened it the other day to a University of Miami Hurricanes FSU football game. It doesn't matter where the the, the the programs are, how good or bad they are at that moment in history. It always comes down to a fucking field goal, you know, like, and that's like. You know, no matter where we should be or no matter how it should fall, I mean, it always comes down to just just uh, this, this handful of votes. And I mean, Donald Trump won 2016 with 77,000 votes in three states. And Florida, I mean, 2000 was 537 votes in, in one state. I mean, that's just I mean, it, it's it's extraordinary. And I think it's something that that unfortunately we need to see. We try to make it easier to digest by dealing dealing in a little bit of 90s nostalgia out of the game sure. you know like you know it, it 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 feels almost that much more tragic when you think of where we are today watching that opening you know because you're just like jesus we are living the epilogue right now and it is just you know like you you can you know you know how far we fall and 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 but what you don't realize is alfred's point is that how this fault line that has been dividing and you know, over the last twenty years, really starts to to break and split in in two thousand. And um, you know, thinking that we could rely on these checks and balances, and the you know the, the the electoral college or the the Supreme Court to say, well, of course you have to count the ballots. Of course you have to. And what's crazy about it is that. Um, you realize is that not only did they stop the recount, but they threw away votes. They threw away votes. Bush's lead had narrowed to 154 by the time the U.S. Supreme Court intervened. And then they said, nah, fuck it. Let's mm -hmm. throw away those votes that had been discovered in a partial recount. Let's stop the recount, throw away those votes, get the margin back to where it was on November 8th, we, you know, a month earlier. 
and certified at 537. I just think about Mr. McAllister. I think about Matthew Broderick in, in Andrew Payne's election. Mm-hmm. What, you know, when, when <laughs> Tracy Flick wins by one vote, he takes the two ballots and he crumbles them up in his hand and he just throws them in the trash. I think about the Supreme Court of the United States doing that in 2000. Ugh, if we just had that one disgruntled janitor that could fix it all for us. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, that, but that's also the lesson of 537 votes is like how all of these sort of obscure, lo, you know, yokel figures could actually have that could have fucking happened there yeah. could have been a janitor in the in the stephen p clark uh, government center in miami dade that could have just like there was an armando gutierrez just like there was a alex pinellas just like there was a david Leahy. who are these people it's like yeah. none of no his, history doesn't really remember them but they were profoundly influential on the fate of the free world I mean, with all the people that Donald Trump has stiffed in the course of his career, you'd think like one of them would come back to bite him somehow, and it hasn't happened one, yet. One, one pissed Florida contractor yeah. who he stiffed, right? <laughs> I mean, like how how many of those must there be? Yeah. You know? Um. So, what is your guys' uh like origin story? How did you meet, and like when when and why did you start uh, working together? We met in a TV production class in ninth grade, middle school. <laughs> Uh, Billy knew our third partner, Dave Sipkin, since they were three, they went to preschool together. So Billy, Dave, and I, so Billy and I met in TV production class. We started making short films together in high school. Then we both went to the University of Miami. Dave went to FSU. And we both, and we all kind of uh, met back up in 2000 to make Raw Deal, our first documentary that premiered at Sundance in 2001. So we've never really had real jobs. Um, (laughs) We've been doing this. We've been doing working together, doing this since we were 15. We we had our first company when we were 15. We were too young to sign the paperwork. So our dads had to be the signers for the, for Spellman Corbin Productions. It sounds like a a law firm, Uh, but that was, uh, that was the first production company. And so uh, we've been doing this since we were 15. Um, So was it, was it ever like conscious? uh, Was it ever, was it like a conscious decision in the beginning to sort of focus on, uh, you know, Miami as the city of the future, or is that just something that grew out of, you know, where you were at and where you grew up? Well, that was the gamble. That was the investment after Sundance. You know, uh, we said that, that um, you know, we were at the time, we were the youngest filmmakers in Sundance history when we debuted Raw Deal, A Question of Consent. And we did like five, uh, 60 interviews in five or six days. And the last question was always the same. It was, are you guys going to, now that you've made a big splash at Sundance, are you going to move to New York or L.A.? And, you know, we just said, no, no, we're going to go home. And we felt that Miami was in Florida, you know, Florida at large and Miami specifically were just this undertapped resource of characters and stories that we wanted to tell. And we wanted to, and the gamble was that, like, we wanted to tie. I think we, we, we were we, we, we knew how tough it might be to be three more schmucks peddling our wares in New York and L.A. or L.A. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to have a brand. We wanted to be, oh, those are the Miami guys. Like, yeah. just so, you know, you'd ha- we'd have an association that would be tied into, listen, Miami's a pretty successful brand, you know? So it didn't seem, it was a, it was a gamble, but it, it, it seemed like a, a calculated risk. And so that was what we wanted to do was tell, you know, we wanted Florida fuckery to be our genre and, and specifically Miami centric stories. And, and, um, and yeah, that was, there was a conscious, a conscious effort that if they didn't know Alfred Spellman, if they didn't know David Sipkin, if they didn't know my name, they would know the work or they would, they would associate the work with, with our geographic uh, location. 
And we grew up reading Carl Hyacin and Ed Buchanan and mm-hmm. Dave Barry and the you know the, the John D. McDonald, the Travis McGee stories. So Florida always had a great a wealth of storytellers and zany storytellers. You know, Hyacin kind of you know popularized that in his novels in the 80s, but nobody was doing it in film mm-hmm. and nobody was doing it in 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 documentary specifically. In the 90s, Miami became this we kind of became Hollywood East, as the boosters here like to talk about it, because we had all of these major Hollywood motion pictures. We had The Specialist and Bad Boys and The Birdcage and uh, uh, Wild uh, Things and whatever, you know, so for this period of like six or seven years in the the mid-90s, Miami really flourished in terms of Hollywood storytelling, but nobody was telling the local indigenous stories. One other thing happened that I I always like to point out, because we are the, the real kind of the kind of say we're the elder millennials here, but we're really the, the children of the, the digital revolution because the summer prior to us going to make Raw Deal, the summer of 1999, two important things happened that ended up impacting our careers in just uh, in tremendous ways. And the first was a Blair Witch Project gets released in the theaters. For the first time, a movie shot digitally by a few schmucks in Orlando ends up getting released, comes, goes out of Sundance and gets released theatrically and makes $140 million. So all of a sudden it became accessible. You didn't need to just shoot a Super 16 feature anymore and try to get to Sundance and, you know, hope to have a negative cut and some dirty, uh, you know, dailies transferred, whatever. You know, you, know you, can, you can make something digitally. And then the second thing that happened that summer, we got our first a DSL line and we became Napster addicts. <laughs> and so seeing the revolution on the production side of things with Blair Witch, and then seeing the revolution on the distribution side of things with Napster and, and, and Big Pipes coming through, we kind of saw this at the time. Billy and I were talking about it. We, our, our buddy of ours, Armando Salas, was going to school to learn to be a, a cinematographer and was, you know, like straight out of uh, um, what's the uh, what's Tom DeSillo's movie? Uh, Living in Oblivion, like mm-hmm. the DP, right? I mean, he was a passionate film guy. I said, Armando, ten years from now, everything's going to be projected digital. And I, he looked like he wanted to punch me in the face. He was so furious that I would tell him this. I was like, oh, you're the bullshit art you're learning here. It's going to be gone in 10 years. And sure enough, in, two, in 2009, 2010, I called Armando because uh, I think AMC had just transitioned fully or one of the theaters. And I said, see, I told you, 10 years, it was going to be over. And yeah. that was it. I, I've always objected to being lumped in with millennials because I think like the dividing line is if you learned to jerk off before high speed internet porn, if you <laughs> like if you can remember jerking off to analog media, then like yeah, we're Gen Y. Like we don't scr- count scrambled s- scrambled Playboy or what you know, what, what do they call the Oregon Trail generation? If you remember <laughs> the card catalog. But, uh, but enough about Jeffrey Tubin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I, I actually, I, to be fair, I think I'm actually young Xer or a Gen Yer rather than I was born in 1978. So mm-hmm. I, I suspect I'm not an old millennial. I suppose you know I, I, I definitely feel like uh, a an analog guy stuck in a in a digital world. But we just fortunately we're just of that age, as Alfred said, to sort of make that transition relatively seamlessly but i still get fucking nervous when like content doesn't exist in a tactile like there's no tapes there's no masters there's no print there's no i mean like i'm like what are we doing all this just a bunch of zeros and ones on a fucking hard drive and we're so nuts about the hard. we like we won't take two hard drives on a plane home with us we leave it with like the like the location upm and then like they ship it after we've successfully let like i just can't like i can't i can't stomach it i don't have the stomach for it (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, I've taken up a ton of your time and I appreciate it. Do you guys have anything uh, that you think I should know that I didn't, uh, that we didn't cover? Vote early and often. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. yeah no, I no. think that's it. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Would you, uh, I, I thought this was like a good conversation. Would you mind if I posted it as like a podcast extra in addition to like whatever I do with the feature? Cause I know there's going to be like a lot of, you know, conversation that I have to leave out. I don't think Jeff Tubin will be happy about it, but yeah, that's all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah.